is the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Discord and Facebook. Links in the description. This week's episode, Secret Space UFOs, Rise of the TR-3B, with Darcy Weir and James Goodall. All right, so this week we're talking about the TR-3B, specifically a documentary made about the TR-3B called... Secret Space UFOs Rise of the TR-3B One of the things I really like about this particular case is unlike a lot of UFO cases, we actually have really good video and photo to, uh, photographic evidence to go along with the witness statements. That's somewhat unusual. It's not that common. That's right. Yeah, but I guess before, before we get started, I should introduce both, the both of you who are with me today. We're talking to Darcy Weir, who's the director of the film, and James Goodall, who was in the film. And we're talk- the film we're talking about is Secret Space UFOs, Rise of the TR-3B. Darcy has directed a couple of other films, such as Being Taken, Beyond the Spectrum, and The Underground. And James Goodall, or Mr. Goodall, or Jim, what do you prefer? Uh, Jim, hey you, whatever. Okay, so yeah, Jim's fine. We'll say yeah. Jim has written <laughs> twenty four books, and he was in the Air Force from nineteen sixty two to nineteen ninety seven. So that's you know a pretty decent career, making him somewhat of an expert in aviation. I would imagine his most recent book is titled Seventy Five Years of the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, and uh, I hear you have a new book that's about to be published. Something about submarines. Yeah, I'm covering uh, actually the nuclear navy, uh, Rickover's dream. It's uh, I'm covering 220 plus nuclear-powered submarines of the United States Navy. I thought it would be fairly easy, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm up to 400 pages and 1,300 photos. Wow! So I'm covering absolutely. I'm having at least three photos of every single submarine. Plus, I have stuff inside. I have stuff, you know. Be, uh, being decommissioned, and I have uh, it's it's gonna be a fun book. It's my 29th book. Okay. Uh, book twenty book twenty eight is in a holding pattern. I'm waiting for the Navy to give me access to one of the arsenal boats, the SSGNs, the Ohio boats. Yeah, it's, we're talking about eighteen thousand tons of whoop ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just I'm just waiting for them to give me the okay. I've I've already shot a C a D. Five and a C four Ohio boat. Those are the ballistic missile uh, versions, and the SSGN is the arsenal boat. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the TR three B. So this is supposed to be part of a secret space program. What is the purpose of this program, and do we know for a fact that it exists? The the space program I'm talking about here. So when people discuss secret space um it kind of has a whole spectrum of speakers and commentators to the theory that basically secret space theory is that on a surface level we have 
the militaries of the world, we have space agencies of the world collaborating and doing secret missions in space. Okay, that's the sort of surface level hypothesis. If you watch my documentaries, um, I'm trying to hypothesize additionally that we've seen UFOs out there. Some of them are probably ours, and some of them could very well be not ours, meaning from some other source in the universe, I'd say. This documentary, Secret Space UFOs Rise of the TR-3B, is actually kind of a, a second documentary. The first one I made was called Secret Space UFOs Part 1, uh, and that covered the whole Apollo space program secrecy and covered very credible UFO incidents that happened where the Apollo astronauts either commented on them or said that they were sent up there to take photos and film them. And then we, you know, are able to actually examine some of that footage or uh, data in that documentary. And I had Stanton Friedman and, um, you know, Kerry uh, Martinuk helped me with that doc. But this doc, I had Jim Goodall. Um, he comes from the aviation history background. He knows what it, it, you know, it's like to work in black projects or secret uh, aerospace projects, let's say. And, um, you know, he was a navigation and telemetry uh, technician installing systems like that into the uh, A-12 Blackbird. That's the CIA version of the SR-71, which, you know, flew from 1968 onwards and... uh, People only found out about it 20 years later in 1988. So he can give some background on top secret spy planes and stuff like that. And then in this documentary, we kind of went from aviation history and seeing a whole bunch of these triangular crafts being made, even going back to the YB-49 that was uh, you know one of the first jet-fueled um, triangular craft that was launched in 1948 by Northrop Grumman. And it kind of never stopped from there. The uh, military contractors and the Air Force have been working hand in hand and testing out very interesting technologies, some of which, um, you know, the world will never see the light of. And some of us, I think, have encountered what we would describe as a TR-3B throughout history. And it's possible some of that was tested out at Area 51. But uh, I guarantee you it's an absolute truth that the A-12, the Blackbird, was tested out of Area 51. And... um, You know, if you listen to stories from Bob Lazar or some other folks that have been whistleblowers in this doc, we cover Edgar Fouché and his testimony about working at Area 51. Um, And, uh, you know, there's some photos from him on the base, apparently working on the F-117 when it was in development and stuff. Um, You know, Edgar Fouché kind of blew up the TR-3B story in the early 90s, and we cover that. And then Jeremy Reese, 
he was very close to Edgar Fouché before he died, found out all kinds of information about his past, about um, Area 51, about the TR-3B, and uh, Jeremy Reese, who goes by the name of Alien Scientist on YouTube, he tends to think that Edgar Fouché was telling the truth about a lot of this stuff. I, I find it very interesting. I think that if you go by the lore of when the TR-3B possibly had been tested or something like the TR-3B, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a nickname. That's all we can really go by. But we know that Northrop Grumman did develop a craft that ran on fossil, well, on jet fuel called the TR-3A. And that was supposedly tested out in the Iraq war. And TR would possibly stand for tactical reconnaissance. Um, the 3B, we, we think it might be, you know, the rumor is that this anti-gravitic craft was an attempt, it was a reverse engineered sample of um, something we have, a UFO that we have possibly recovered um, in the past, whether that's crash craft or we uh, were given it. And, you know, Jim could even speak to that a bit. Yeah, one, one question actually occurred to me when I was watching the film was I've spoken with people before, just, you know, at parties or whatever. And the idea out there is that we would never recover a crashed extraterrestrial vehicle because their technology would be so good that they wouldn't possibly crash on Earth. And I always thought that was a strange idea <laughs> because even our technology, as good as it is, fails all the time. So it, it seems kind of silly to think that, you know, the technology of a, a different race or species would be perfected to the point where they would have a zero failure rate. I don't know. What do you think about that, Jim? Do you think that it, you know, the possibility that something could crash? <laughs> yeah, the, you know, and the, the old saying goes, you know, how does a turtle move? It sticks its neck out first. <laughs> if you're not breaking things or crashing things or bending things, you're not pushing the envelope. And that goes back to the Wright brothers. And, you know, literally, if you, if you have a program and you have not crashed or bent or broken one of your airplanes or whatever the, whatever the, the uh, platform is, then you're not doing your job. You're not expanding the envelope. And stuff comes and goes uh, in, this, in the secret world that, you know, you and I will never know about. I'm a historian. That's what I am. And I'm, I'm a hardware guy. I, uh, I, I, I sort of feel like Bob Lazar in a way. Uh, he said, when I first met him, this is before he went to work on the desert, you couldn't put a gun to his head to convince him that UFO, UFOs were real. He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't touch it or, or uh, prove it mathematically, then as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist. Well, short time after Bob got his job out there, and we all know what happened after that. So, the, um, again, things, things crash. That's why they have crash trucks at airports. Uh, that's why you have the crash, crash truck, trucks at military uh, uh, air bases. Stuff happens. You know, you you prank something, you break it. Uh, it's going to happen. I don't care. I don't care what it is. I mean, they had twenty-one B two bombers. We're talking about a multi-billion-dollar platform that can actually bomb anywhere in the world, and those things are taken care of like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they have you know they have people totally responsible for the airplane, and what happens? Someone uh, 
washed the B2 or it was outside in the rain, water got into its uh, static ports. They apparently didn't turn the heaters on, or maybe they did and the heater, you know, they popped a circuit breaker, I don't know. But, but on takeoff, the airplane decided it was gonna, it was gonna pitch up and uh, cartwheel down, down the runway. Now this is a three or four billion, I mean billions with a B. Uh, airplane and less than two dozen of them, and now we're short one. So that happens. I don't. I don't care what it is. Yeah, so, and I mean, I'll just I'll add to that. Like, you know, in terms of UFOs crashing, possible off-world craft. Um, you just look at the Battle of L.A., which happened in I think that was 1942. So that would have predated the 1947 supposed Roswell crash that is so well documented and hundreds of witnesses have come forward to talk about. Uh, well, the battle of LA, they unloaded what, like 1800 shells into the sky over LA to try and take up, take out a saucer shaped craft that was hovering over the city. There's pictures of it that were published in the newspaper that show, you know, spotlights on something that doesn't look like, your typical aircraft. And apparently, um, you know, we're trying to shoot these things down. So if, if I don't care how sophisticated your equipment is, um, if the human element is involved and we want to take it down, well, that's how you're going to get a crash retrieval. Yeah. Good point. And yeah, there's there's lots of stories that actually speaking of the Battle of L.A., we're scheduled to do that one next week. So it's it's funny you mentioned that one. It's a really interesting case. But uh, yeah, there there are some pretty credible stories of, you know, crashed UFOs, but we probably probably won't get into that today. It's just that's too much of a tangent, I think. For this movie, I wanted to ask for people who are unaware, how would you describe the, the Skunk Works program? That's pretty central to the movie. Darcy, answer me. Oh, who, e- go for it, Jim. Yeah, either one. I mean, the 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 skunk works. Uh, Kelly Johnson wrote, you know, fifteen uh, laws for for doing business in the classified or black programs environment, and uh, a, a couple a couple of those those items are you give authority to the lowest common denominator. Your your office door is always open. Someone has a question, an engineer has a question on the production line, he could walk right into Kelly's office or, or uh, after he, uh, he retired, Ben Rich, and say, hey, I got a problem with that. And then Ben or Kelly would roll up his sleeve, uh, shirt sleeves and walk out on the production floor and take a look at it, you know, firsthand. And they say, okay, you know how to fix it? I said, yeah, I think I can, I can do it. And said, then do it. Uh, Companies that have uh, real uh, extreme tight uh, orders of uh, authority from the top on down can operate like that. The Skunk Works gives authority to the, to the lowest common denominator person on the floor, and if he screws if he screws up a couple times, you, I mean, you, you go in there and you, you find out where, where that person went wrong, and you show them the right way to do it. Or say, well, let's let's work this out together, and then let him let him or her when we're in that environment uh, be able to uh, take a you know take a hard look at what the what the solution is and help them work through it. 
And that's that's how that's how the Skunk Works works. When they when they did when they built and designed the uh, the original you know P eighty the XP eighty, they did it in less than a year and a half. I mean, less than eighteen months. Uh, when they developed the the U two, I think it was like one hundred and eight days from signing a contract to first flight. When they when they were developing the Blackbird, the A twelve ox cart which led to the SR-71, from signing a contract to first flight was 32 months. Today, the Air Force can't change the paint scheme on a C-130 in 32 months. <laughs> I mean, you, you laugh about it, but it's true. It's, it's, they just, they, it's gotten so overburdened. Uh, when, they were, when they were building the F-117, uh, we'll step back. When they're building the Blackbird, they had about, 250 security people at all locations. Uh, and that was a build of 50 airplanes, plus the, the uh, drones, the D-21s. Building the F-117, they built uh, you know, pretty close to 60 airplanes, almost the same number. And they had 500 security people. Ben Rich told me that security in a classified program adds 25% to the bottom line of the costs. So... Uh, and a lot of times security isn't for national security is to cover one's rear end for doing something wrong or spending money or not, uh, not doing what the bean counters wanted you to do with that billion dollars they gave you here last month. I mean, it's just, it's something that happens. One question I had that occurred to me when I was watching is when they, they started making flying wing or triangle shaped aircraft, what would be the advantage of using an aircraft like that over a conventional aircraft with, you know, with the wings and the tail and all that? If you, if you look at a on picture of any of the Northrop flying wings from the, from the uh, XB-30, you know, the uh, uh, YB-49 and the B-2, when you look on them straight on, they're just a, a thin line. I mean, they physically have a smaller uh, radar cross-section without being stealth just because of the design. There's also like an advantage to control surfaces, right? Like when it comes to radar and stuff like that, Jim? Yeah, well, if you, if you don't have vertical tails or you've, you've canned them a certain way and you have special coatings on the, on the leading edge, you have special coatings in the inlet and it's usually an S-type duck that prevents... The way you become invisible, you're still going to get painted by the radar. But what you want to do, you want to reflect 99.9% of the energy away from the receiver. And what little energy is still left in, in the signal, you want to have radar absorption material or structure that literally uh, absorbs the heat from the, uh, from the radiated energy. And that's and that's basically how you become invisible. If you if the if the signal can't get back to transmitted from now one of one of the things that you know the I think the Russians have played with I know it happened in in Serbia during uh, Operation Allied Force where they lost an F one seventeen. If you transmit a very powerful uh, long wavelength uh, signal, just blast it out there, you know, anywhere you want. And then you have dozens of receivers 
So you're coming in, your thing hits here, it's not coming back, but it's going, it's being bounced over here. You have a receive over here. Uh, if you have the right electrical engineers working with you, you can take the, all those multiple locations. You, you can do a, a, a cross reference and you can tell pretty close to where it's at. Yeah, so you're no longer invisible through vector triangulation type thing. C- correct, correct. So, so, yeah, and additionally, I know where you're going with that question, um, Adam. I would say in terms of the form and function, apparently, of a TR3B or just a flying triangle, um, you know, an exact triangle. When you look at aft now, like um, – uh, uh, I was speaking the other day, there's the X-47 and there's uh, the, the rush. That's an unmanned, uh, you know, pretty much a flying triangle. There's an unmanned um, Russian stealth uh, uh, plane as well that was launched last year. And um, if you look at these shapes... And then you look at the TR-3B, supposedly, and what eyewitnesses have seen, um, not all of them are TR-3Bs, because supposedly the TR-3B was a massive craft. You know, to try and allude to uh, what some people may have witnessed as a TR-3B, I'd say the Phoenix Lights. Because if you listen to Edgar Fouché's description of the TR-3B, this thing could... tank into space it could take loads of personnel like an apartment's worth that type of thing and you could go from here to wherever you wanted in space um, with a bit of anti-gravity and supposedly the thrusters on each corner were using uh, hydrogen so that was like the only sort of fuel-based propulsion part of that system but Triangular was important to its form and function mostly because of the way that they were adapting our technology to something they saw on something way more exotic. So let's take Bob Lazar's sports model, for example. If you look at the bottom of that, what does the propulsion system look like? Supposedly, there was a center anti-gravitic uh, hub that created the the propulsion off the ground, and then there was three pylons, and those three pylons surrounded that center anti-gravitic engine in a triangular form. And the rumor goes that you know if this thing flew had its maiden flight on 1979 for the TR3B or whatever it actually was called, um, the took a look at something like the sports model and said, okay, let's put the propulsion engine in the middle. Let's make it anti-gravitic. That was this rotating, mer- super-cooled, mercury-based superconductor. Superconductors creating anti-gravitic um, effects have been pretty well doc- documented by a Russian scientist named Poklonov. Pok- uh, I think it Ning Li a Chinese uh, physicist who talked about anti-gravity and proving that it, it's, it works. NASA has done a rotating superconductor study, and they, that paper's been published. So it's like pretty well-documented stuff. They were looking at something that was supposedly manufactured on an atomic level, which 
we are nowhere near being able to do possibly even now. And they're saying, okay, how do we make this? Well, how do we make a craft that carries out the same sort of uh, ability? So they took a triangular form and they put the thrusters on each corner, kind of duplicating that uh, setup of these pylons on the bottom of something like the sports model. And then they have this anti-gravity engine in the middle that gets you off the ground and the thrusters allow you to go where you want to go. And people even say um, constantly like, if a craft is supposed to be stealth, why would there be three lights on each corner on the bottom? And you got to think about it this way, right? Those aren't lights you might be recording. Those are thrusters. Those are, uh, pro- that's a propulsion system you're recording. It's not, and oftentimes the videos that are being recorded by eyewitnesses, you can't see the lights with your naked eye. You know, so that just throws that argument right out the window. For example, Alara, who I featured in the doc, she's she, you know, says that she was at this conference and she looked back, she could see something, but then when she took out her phone, she was recording the sky where she used to be in this field, and she couldn't see with her naked eye anything above that field except for one light. Um, and supposedly when they were in that field, they could see some kind of like projection of maybe this strange butterfly type, uh, is the best way she could describe it. Right. It was strange. So that might've been the light that was presenting this show to this group of UFO, uh, folks doing a CE five in the field. But what the camera picked up on her phone, which your eye couldn't see, was a triangular-shaped craft with a light source on each corner. So it was being stealth in a way. It was projecting some sort of image to um, hide its form. And then at the same time, uh, your, your eye can't even see it. The human eye can't see in that light spectrum, maybe, and that's why this thing was able to stay cloaked. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the Phoenix Lights, and I don't think you mentioned it in the movie, but it immediately jumped to mind because some of the witness descriptions from that event seemed very similar with a craft that was translucent or invisible that they could sort of see like the stars shimmering through and that sort of thing. It seems an awful lot like a lot of the TR-3B videos that you can see in your documentary. Yeah, and... um the TR-3B, again, is supposed to be a massive craft. It's not supposed to be super small. But what I think has happened since, if you believe that something like this might have been test-driven uh, in 1979, um, we've just taken that initial design and we've shrunk it down and we've found more applications for it. And we've probably got drones. You know, if we if we have the capability to have people sitting in a room using a computer and flying around airspace, there's no reason that that won't be the way that we're doing a secret space program, right? And uh, Richard Dolan was featured in the documentary, and he kind of lends to that idea that secret space simply means domination of space and keeping everything that you're doing in space secret, and everything that's happening in space secret. It doesn't necessarily mean like 
Captain Falco and his alliance of square beings or something are doing stuff out there and there's they're carrying and there's humans souls being trapped in bodies and then I don't know you know what I mean we don't really have to go down there but just very logically there is a secret space program that's being carried out around the world um the extremely hyper out there sort of story that steals the secret space narrative is, you know, uh, alien beings living on the moon and um, aliens trying to save the earth from itself that are like some kind of Captain Falco blue bird people or something, right? And I I don't know (laughs) if there's any evidence that right it's just a story that sounds really exciting and people get excited about really out there stories i am pretty confident that there are alien beings uh coming to our planet and over the years have possibly tried interfacing with us but um you know the the most common stories from you know hundreds of individuals, experiencers, people that have worked in the, the military, some form or fashion, uh, is that they either look like us or they look like the greys. We don't hear, we, we haven't heard throughout history in this sort of uh, subject um, of bird people. That's a new one. So when you hear something that's like brand new like that, you got to step back and be like, does, is there corroborating evidence of this or is this just the new thing? And um, yeah, so that's, that's uh, what you got to watch out for when it comes to studying all this stuff. I, I have a comment along those same lines. First of all, when, when our government is for, supposed to be for the people and by the people, um, when they release something that has been classified and they finally release it to the public, it's probably 20 years old. You're not seeing anything at state of the art today. Uh, ben Rich, and I was blessed to be his friend. Ben Rich replaced Kelly Johnson at the Skunk Works. And for some reason, uh, Ben Rich had a, an affinity towards uh, John Andrews from Testers. He's passed away back in the 90s. And myself. And Ben and I talked once a quarter for 25 years. If I didn't call him he called me and one of the things he that he said at uh, right after retired mid 90s he was at ucla it was a aeronautical engineers graduate uh seminar these are all grad students ben rich went up there he's given his you know spiel on the skunk works working in uh state-of-the-art stuff and he said and he said and it's it's you can find you can written down uh, yeah, what he said. He said, today, this, this is 1996, 97 time frame, said, today we have the ability to take E.T. home. Now think about that statement. This is the man who ran the Skunk Works, the most advanced, super secret, aeronautical research uh, organization on this planet. And he says, we have the ability to take E.T. home but our government will not allow that information to be made public. And that's really frustrating. And just before he passed away, 
I talked to Ben at, uh, he was at USC Medical Center in LA. He was dying from esophageal cancer, probably as a result of being around the uh, solvents used in making stealth airplanes. And we were talking about our, my friend John Andrews from Testers and a bunch of this stuff. And he, and he finally said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. And he wasn't referring to Area 51, could have been S4, but he didn't say. We have things out in the desert that's 50 years be- beyond what I could understand. Not what you think you can build, but what you can imagine. And he said, if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. So that really, I mean, this is, this is a man, if, if anybody on this planet had access and knowledge of alien technology that we're not being, we're not being allowed to use, it would be the president or vice president general manager of the Lockheed Skunk Works. Now, I did ask the vice president general manager of the Lockheed Skunk Works this past June, June 3rd, uh, Jeff Babion, I was there doing a book signing on my 75 years of the Skunk Works, and I asked him, I looked, we're heading over the U2 operation, I looked him right in the eye, and I said, it's Jeff, I said, what's, what's the Skunk Works involvement in alien technology? <laughs> he says, I, I said, and he says, tell you the truth, I says, Jim, I have no knowledge. I'm looking him right in the eye, and you can, you can tell an awful lot by looking into a person's soul through his eyes, and I believe he was telling me the truth. It doesn't mean it wasn't built or designed and, and operated and, and whatever, you know, at the Skunk Works prior to him getting there. But we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with, a, with an organization that is, is building and dealing with the most advanced aerospace structures known to man. Maybe not known to aliens, but known to man. And he, like you said, I said, he says, I don't think we're alone, but that's not, that, that's my personal opinion. It's not that of Lockheed's. So I felt very, very comfortable that what he was telling me was, was from his heart, was, was, was true. And I, I feel the same way. I feel that there's been too many things going on uh, that lead me to believe that we're not alone. And if, if only, if, if out of the millions upon millions of UFO, flying saucers, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, if only one of them is real, that's all you need. You don't need 10,000 or 100,000. All you need is to get one of the, one of the craft that, we have, that people all over the planet have seen and, and going back to ancient times. You know, there's, there's petroglyphs on walls in Australia and South America and whatever showing what appears to be discs in the sky, beams coming down you know, from the sky, uh, creatures or humanoids with large heads and big eyes, or maybe, maybe they're wearing a, a spacesuit type of thing. I mean, it, and that stuff is found all over the planet. Now, maybe because we didn't have communication, you know, worldwide communication back then, we actually had no communication other than smoke signals and, and uh, runners going from one place to the other. Um, there was, was no way to cause a panic. There was no way to you know, get the information out, to, to share that information. And, and, and in today's world, with everybody having a, a, a smartphone with an incredible camera in it, it's, it's only a matter of time before someone gets up close and personal to a UFO and we can see it. But because they have, 
well, since since Roswell, they have they've done everything to discredit anybody who has any knowledge or any interest at all in UFOs. Um, that's you know that attitude's changing. But, you know, I asked my I asked my boss. I worked for Major General uh, Wayne Gatlin for uh, five years, and I said, General Gatlin, so I got a question, and I was I was enlisted. I said, let's say I'm a now this is back in the '80s. I said, let's say I'm an Air you know, Air Force or Navy pilot, military pilot, and I fly up or I come in contact with a flying saucer. I you know I follow it. I uh, you know you know take mental pictures of it. I didn't have. You know, they didn't have smartphones back then, so I didn't, you know, the only thing they would have would be a 35-millimeter camera, and you just don't take one of those up when you're an alert bird. Uh, it's just, uh, what would I do if I, if I saw one? And so he said, well, once you land, you go through your debrief, you go to the O Club, take a couple really, really big, stiff shots of the strongest stuff they had, then go home and go to sleep and forget about it. Because the second, the second you come out and say, hey, I just chased the flame saucer. Your career just went down to the toilet. That's not the case today because there's too many collaborating people that are well-trained. I mean, I go, and my wife never looks up in the sky. I, I know thousands of people that never look up in the sky. I'm surprised I don't trip on things because I'm always looking at the sky. I'm always, and, I, and I've, been out, I've been out in Nevada and at the fence line at either uh, Area 51 or Tonopah Test Range, well over 80 times in the last 40 years. And I just, I, I, that just, they're out there. There's something there. And I, and I, I really, really want to see it. I've been in Tipico Valley, which is just East Area 51, right near the Black Mailbox. And I'm, uh, the sun's going down. It was a sliver moon. And, there, you know, the, it's, it's so black and so dark out. That it, you know, for about thirty minutes, thirty to forty-five minutes, I couldn't see my feet. It was that dark, and I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, "Okay, okay, if you can read minds, if you if you believe in telepathy, that right? Yeah, telepathy, uh, <laughs> telepathy, yeah, abduct me. But please let me bring my camera. I just don't <laughs> want to cover this, and uh, it's it, it never happened. Eh? No, no, it never happened. I didn't even get a twin. I didn't even, you know, and as much as I'm looking up in the sky and as much as I've, all the times I've spent in and around Area 51 or just Nevada in general, my, and I'm always up there and I carry a set of binoculars with me everywhere. And, and when, I'm in, when I'm anywhere out in the desert, even here in Arizona, I have my camera with me. I have a, I have a Nikon. I have, only have a 610. Uh, maybe if I strike it rich with my uh, Skunkworks books, I'll get a 850 or something like that, Nikon. But I'm always looking. I'm always hoping to see it. And someone needs, you know, these these little pixels of something moving through the sky. I don't know what it is. It could be a UFO. It could be a bug. Uh, it could be someone with a. It could be someone with a drone. But it's. I think. I think we're really close. To, to disclosure and and we may not and I, when I say we I mean the governments of the world they may not be in the driver's seat when it comes to disclosure like one Israeli scientist or engineer had said uh, within the last year he the said ex, the director the ex director of uh, the space Israeli space agency 
Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He said, "We're not ready for it." And when you know, when that when that time comes, it's going to be like someone dropping a hydrogen bomb in your neighborhood. I mean, it's it's going to have and but my my one of my biggest fear is that the the, the idiots that on that the news readers that you uh, that are on the idiot box every night they'll they'll find some way to ridicule anybody who sees you know who has proof that UFOs were real. I mean, poor Bob Lazar just got skewered from one end to the other, and he you know he told me here a couple of years ago. I said, Jim says the biggest mistake I ever made in my life was going public on what I did at S four. So my my life has been. Uh, just a pain in the butt from, you know, from the the naysayers and the people who want a piece of me and, you know, those who want to ridicule me or, or, or do me, you know, do me injustice. And it's just, and that's, that's the way we've operated since Roswell. Let, let's ridicule the person. Let's, you know, let's slam him. Let's, you know, let's uh, uh, make his life miserable. It's yeah, disclosure, really the- disclosure will come with the same um, reaction. Because humans just don't like change. They like stability in what they know. And if you come out, you know, everybody gets attacked. Um, I involved Tyler Glockner in this film, and he's my friend. And this guy has been attacked so much left, right, and center over the years. Um, And, you know, what he says to me is, I just want to make cool UFO related content for people to see. And he, he gets attacked a lot. And it's because people are just too challenged by the idea, you know? And um, if the governments or there's some kind of public statement from the military about some kind of extraterrestrial involvement in the future, it's going to get attacked. I guarantee you it's going to become a huge discussion and there's going to be just as much skepticism as there is belief, probably more skepticism. And yeah. And the other, the other thing is when it finally is made public, when the world finally is allowed to to see it, it's either going to, it's either going to be like the day the world uh, stood with the day the earth stood still that uh, 1950s vintage, and of course the 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 recent version, um, or it's going to be like Mars Attacks. I mean, <laughs> that's my that's my favorite one. <laughs> but it's 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 you're gonna you're gonna have people. I mean, you could have one land in the middle of a Super Bowl in an open you know, an open air stadium, have it land right on the 50 yard line at at halftime. And there'll be people on CNN, you know, the, the garbage news network. It should be GNN, um, you know, saying, "Well, this thing's fake. How? Could, you know, nothing like this could really happen." I mean, and that's and that's what we'll, that's what the uh, the lames will do. They will they will do everything they can to destroy the messenger, and that's not right. I mean, I'm a I'm a at one time I wanted to be a history teacher. I I love history, and I and it. It pains me that they don't teach history at all in in today's public schools. They're in, they're not schools; they're indoctrination centers. Uh, but 
it's going to happen. And when it's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of people with egg on their face. There's going to be a lot of people with, um, it, it could, could pe- have people go off the deep end. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, some uh, thoughts that one of the reasons why they, you don't have disclosure yet is because they don't think the world, not the first world, but 95% of the, of the population of the world is third world or worse. And what holds them together is the glue of a supreme being, whether it's, whether it's Jesus Christ, God, Buddha, Muhammad, Adam Smith, or, uh, or, whatever, or the, the candy guy down you know, on the end of the street. I mean, it's, all that stuff is all the glue that holds the people together it holds their you know their feelings together and everything else because i believe in god and and he's going to be there well maybe god is not from this planet maybe he really is a, a real entity and if you know when the day comes and 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 it's brought to light i think it i think the world could come unglued that's you know that's what you know, civilization and, and being civil Believing in, in right and wrong is is a very very strong power, and if all of a sudden everything you believe in is turned to you know turned to dust because we just had a UFO land in the White House lawn during an uh, international uh, news conference from the Rose Garden, that's when that's when people that's the only way the world is going to um, consider it true. Yeah, and they'll probably say, "Well, that's that, that, that's uh, com- that's uh, computer graphics. That's not real." And maybe, maybe they have, maybe we have to have a mothership like in uh, um, Independence Day, or some of the other uh, some of the other uh, UFO movies. But it's gonna when it's it's gonna be. I hope I live long enough to see it. I'm yeah, you know, I'm gonna be seventy seven here real soon, and I uh, I really really want to be around when. When one goes up and is able to, sh- you know, shake the hand of uh, the president or you know, Queen Elizabeth or whomever, so it's just um, I'm waiting. It's going to happen, but it's going to happen on their timetable, not ours. So you can wish all we want. We could, you know, you know, send letters or emails all we want to. I need this declassified. I need that declassified. Until it's ready to happen, it's not going to happen. Uh, you're just, you're just. Uh, treading water so but it's real there's too many there's too many people i know that are credible that have uh well dave fruhoff for example sr-71 pilot he chased one in an sr-71 and it left him in the dust and he was uh i think he was asked to back off that statement but he, I was in his house, and we sat down. We were talking about um, blackbirds and everything else. He was an SR-71 pilot, and he crashed one. He was one that had a total electrical failure as a student pilot, and he had, a, he had a bailout, and that's one of the reasons I was you know, interviewing him. And then when we got done with the interview, I said, Dave, you believe in UFOs? And he said, oh, yeah, they're real. I said, you want to explain? He said, yeah. He said, I'm flying an SR-71 Late 72, early 73, the Vietnam War is still going strong. Uh, we're, I'm flying out of Kadena. It's a night training mission. He was at 78,000 feet at about Mach 2.7, which is a normal cruising speed. And the airplane loves to, to go fast. And the, the throttle is an absolute minimum burner. 
It's a three-quarter moon off to his left. And he gets a glint on something metallic three or four miles away, maybe a little bit farther, four or five, 6,000 feet above him. So he contacts Kadena on Secure Voice to see if we have another blackbird up. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. He said, no, I'm going to go take a look. So he pushes the throttles forward and about a 10-degree bank, and he's starting to climb towards uh, this object. His backseater gets on the horn and said, hey, Dave, says, you know, we got company. He said, yeah, I'm going to go take a, I'm taking a look. And he said, we're well, still a couple miles away and still maybe a couple thousand feet below it. This thing took off and left him in the dust like he was heading the other direction. It's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't a circular craft. It, it was uh, reflective, and it had edges to it. And he said he, it left him you know, between eight and 10,000 miles an hour is what he figured, and he lost track of it going between 180 and 200,000 feet is what he estimates. Um, is it ours? No, this is 1972-73, so he retires in 1980. He's looking for a job. He has a uh, higher-than-top-secret clearance. It's a job as facility manager at Area 51. He was responsible for all, uh, every building from the big biggest hangar to the paint locker and all non-program aircraft, the hack birds, the chase birds and stuff like that. So once he was there, he was there, you know, he, had, he was there for five years, but he, he waited about a year. He knew most everybody there anyway, just because of involvement in the Blackbird program. But after he was there about a year, he's at the, he's at the, uh, you know, the club after work. So he starts asking, hey, do we ever flight test something that can go Mach 12, Mach 15, Mach 16? Everybody said, no, not here. Why? It's my chase something. Um, so he said he didn't, he didn't find anybody at Area 51 that confirmed the fact that whatever he chased was not flight tested at Area 51. And if it wasn't flight tested at Area 51, I don't think any other country has the ability. Russia doesn't have the ability. The Chinese, they've stolen most of our technology. They don't have the ability to build something like that. Where did it come from? Um, is, it a, is it a program that's so deep and so buried that not even... Uh, the head of the Lockheed Skunk Works knows about it. That's very possible. Is it very? Is it possible that you know, they've kept that from members of con Congress? Oh, that's that's one of their favorite things to do. I mean, they they were very limited when they were when they were taking two billion dollars in 1958. That was a ton of money back then, and they were using that was the the money they you know they allocated to. Uh, design, develop, build, flight test, and operate the original Blackbird, the A-12 Oxcart. And that was funded by and for the Central Intelligence Agency. But it was money well spent. You could not, uh, the, the amount of money they spent, even adjusted for inflation, it was the time frame, the, 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 the time from signing a contract at first flight was such a short time. I was over, at, I was at Skunk Works in August of, 88 and i you know i saw the f30 it was the x35 ironbird it's a, it's, a, it's primarily the airframes made of steel and they're just it, it, everything was fit and function and uh, there's no skin on on a lot of it that was 40 years ago and the f1 and the and the f35 is still not fully mission capable it's it's initial operational capability is there but it's uh, 
F4 or 4F version of their software hasn't been done yet. It's not completed. It won't be for another two years. So, yeah, we, we live in a different world from when, when the Blackbridge were developed and, and even the U2 and the F117. But the technology is out there. And we have, and there are billions, there are billions of Earth-like planets in this universe. I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories, uh, about 50 miles west of Tucson. Uh, it's at 7,000 feet. They have uh, 22 optical telescopes, everything from a primary mirror that's, that's 12 inches to a primary mirror that's 13 feet. That's the Mayall uh, telescope. And it's, uh, and the 2.1 meter, Caltech used it for five years. And their job, they had adaptive optics. It would just for distortion, air distortion, 100 times a second. And it, for five years, they looked in a very, very small area of our Milky Way, just our galaxy. And in that five-year time frame, they were able to catalog 8,000 exoplanets, 8,000. And just before I left, uh, being a docent at Kitt Peak, they had a, we had a meeting of all the astronomers, technicians, and docents. And the subject was exoplanets. And our speaker was one of the top people from the National Science Foundation. He had just returned from a conference on exoplanets. And they calculated using the best method mathematically, proven you know, mathematically. They estimate that in, in the universe for every star, there's one and a half planets. And out of that incredible number, over 2 billion, that's with a B, 2 billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar size brown dwarf star like our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. And to quote Jodie Foster's character in Carl Sagan's movie, contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, keep looking. Don't, you know, who, who, yeah. all of you are out, out there listening to this, go out, look up in the sky. If you live in, anywhere near, near Nevada or whatever, make sure you have a camera with you. Not cell phone cameras are nice, but you know they they can't really replace a, a really really good get uh, something with a good lens and a zoom. Yeah, on, right. Yeah, and because it, that's going to happen. And in today's world, someone shows you a photograph of a UFO. You don't know if it's been photoshopped or what it is. It could be a it could be one of these you know very sophisticated drones you can get at you know at Hobby Depot and whatever. Uh, you know, the only photograph you really can't alter or change or fake is a Polaroid because there's no negative. It's developed. Whatever the, whatever the film sees is what is put onto the film, is onto the finished product. And there's no inter-negative or anything. So you can't fake something on a Polaroid. So if someone hands you a photograph, it's a Polaroid, then it's a pretty good idea. It's real. If not, who knows? Yeah, I can, you know, if someone wanted to you know, really do a number on somebody, I, they can put you in bed with anybody or anything and make it. And you couldn't tell the difference. Your wife or your husband couldn't tell the difference. Uh, yeah, deep got, fakes. Deep fakes yeah. are getting pretty crazy yeah. these days. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's a little a little alarming <laughs> where that, you know, who knows what direction that's <laughs> yeah. going to go. It's only a matter of time till some scandal breaks and nobody's really sure if it's a true thing or not, right? 
I feel right, like that's right. that's going right. to happen. It has to. Going back to the movie, there was one part in the movie, Jim, where you held up a piece of material that was used on the outside of the stealth fighter. And I've heard of this material before, like I've heard rumors of it. And what I heard was it's sort of like a rubbery material and it has like a microscopic texture that deflects radar and that's that's the purpose of it. But is is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the radar absorption material has been around for a long, long time. They use it on submarines. Uh, they use it on um, people have made bras for their cars out of radar absorption material. And what it does, it's uh, it's a neoprene type of product that has uh, pr- primarily iron particles mixed in with it. And what happens, the radiator and energy hits it and it, it heats up the iron particles. And what the stuff that's heated up is not reflected back. So it's, uh, yeah, I held up, a, I had held up a piece of, of F-117 RAM, uh, a gentleman that I had, uh, I, I had some parts off a of crashed one and I, I gave it to him and he said, well, as a thank you here, and he handed me that. And I said, what's that off of? I mean, it's shaped like an F-117. He said, well, that's what it came off of. <laughs> so, so uh, and that's proprietary. I don't know if it has national security in, in it, but it is proprietary to, you know, to the Lockheed Skunk Works. Okay, thanks. Yeah, because I remember hearing about that and it just sounded like such an odd thing, but it was kind of, Kind of, it's exciting for me to actually see it in the movie. <laughs> well, there it is. That's something I heard about many years ago, but it turns out to be true. <laughs> you can take that same material. You can take that same material and cover your car with it, and you can go through a, a speed trap at 150 miles an hour, and they won't even get a blip. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wonder if you can get that at the local auto part, auto parts store. Probably not, right? <laughs> No, I, I think radar, absor- radar absorption material, not, not the classified stuff, not the aviation quality stuff, but RAM is commercially available because they use it on other things besides airplanes, besides you know, war machines. So there, is, you know, there, is, there are commercial applications for it. I don't know any offhand, but uh, we've been talking. I can, I can remember back in, you know, back in the early 60s, Someone was uh, someone had a hot car, and they wanted to see it was a Porsche, 911, and they they had put a uh, they made a bra out of radar absorption material, and they had a a certified calibrated radar uh, gun from Highway Patrol at one end. They can zipping down this uh, out middle of nowhere, and it wasn't until they were really really close. I'm talking about hundreds of feet not miles, where the, uh, before there was any, any type of return coming back from the radar gun. And then they, to show you the, the effects of design of vehicles, they had a, I think it was a GMC Titan, the, the big flat nose, the flat uh, face trucks of, you don't see them around anymore. But that thing had a, uh, that thing uh, peaked on the radar, uh, the cops radar from two and a half miles away. <laughs> Wow. So design does make a big difference. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, triangles do the same thing. They, from a frontal view, they reflect the energy away from the uh, transmitting site. So one thing that was touched upon briefly in the movie was that the phrase unfunded opportunity. 
What's the significance of that phrase? It came from a letter from, from Ben R. Rich, the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, to John Andrews, who is the, one of the, uh, is the development director at uh, Tester Company. They're out of Rockford, Illinois. They make scale model uh, cars, planes, and whatever. And John had written a letter in June, early June of 86, asking Ben Rich, said, do you and Kelly, referring to Johnson, do you believe in UFOs? Now, there are two categories, both man-made and extraterrestrial. And Ben wrote back um, within, within the same week, he got, he got the uh, letter back handwritten on his corporate letterhead. And it's, it's, on, the, it's on the web, but uh, Michael Schratt has, you know, has the original. Um, and it was uh, said, uh, dear John, it says, uh, both Kelly and I are firm believers in both categories. Because Kelly Johnson saw two UFOs back in the 50s. He said, we refer to ours as unfunded opportunities, he underlines the U, the F, and the O. If something was given to you or, or something crashed and you recovered it, you have this object, you have this technology, and, and you didn't have to pay for it. So it's an unfunded opportunity. And, and Ben says, we refer to ours as unfunded opportunities, underline the U, the F, and the O. He said, but beware, there are people who will lead you astray and could do you harm. Um, but that, that, is, that, is a, that is a quote from a letter on, from the president of Lockheed Skunk Works back in June of 1986, Ben R. Rich, president. So that's, that's real. Quite the authority. If, you know, if you're talking about somebody reliable, that's about as reliable as it gets, I'd say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have a question, maybe for Darcy, the movie in the movie, we see a whole lot of logos from different space agencies and programs. And I never really noticed this before, but uh, you see the vector symbol in all kinds of them. And you show many, many, I couldn't, I, I don't know how many dozens of them. What is, is the significance of this vector symbol in these logos? Is that like related to the TR3B? Well, the first thing you have to know is that the vector shape wing design, that goes back to NASA's first hypersonic wing designs of 1959, before they even, you know, flew into space. Um, and so it starts there, but then it almost becomes an obsession in shape that all of the space agencies and a lot of the military and air force um, agencies that deal with space incorporate into their logos. So, you know, it's kind of like a bit of a out there affirmation that there might be triangles flying in space because you even see some of these uh, mission patches or logos, and they have a a bomber on there, or they have um, another sort of typical jet design beside one of these triangles. So it's like, what are they trying to say? Like, the jet already has that hypersonic design to it, so why would they put that beside a craft that looks like just a, a pure triangle, right? So, 
Yeah, I think we wanted to go over a history of kind of hidden in plain sight a possible um, affirmation that they're testing stuff out there in space that is possibly space capable that looks like a flying triangle. Yeah, and that hidden in plain sight thing does show up on occasion. And these, the when somebody designs a logo for these, it, it as far as I can tell, the logo actually means something. It's not they don't just use like you know pretty artwork or whatever. It's designed specifically for something, right? There, there is a Air Force and military regulations on how an official patch is created. Uh, in the Air Force, it has to have a certain percentage of sky blue or night, you know, your dark blue. It has to have uh, a certain amount of yellow, and it has to have a certain amount of red somewhere within the official patch. So you look, you look at the patch for Strategic Air Command um, or any, any of the units, and they, they all have to adhere to a certain standard, and it's reviewed. Uh, you, you know, you're not allowed to have anything that de- depicts an actual airplane. It could be a representative shape, but it uh, you you couldn't have the shape of the F-117, for example, on your on your official patch. Unofficial, you can do anything. But if it's officially, if it's an official unit from the United States military, it, there's you know, there's heralding and, and history. Uh, Considerations have to be taken into any patch that you create. Um, you know, I've, uh, I know when I was stationed in Denver back in the early 60s, we were asked to develop a, uh, a patch for our, you know, for our unit. And I submitted like five or six different uh, versions. I sat down with, you know, with my commander. We called him a urinal peck. His name was Colonel Peck. Um, but uh, sorry. <laughs> So it was, you know, it, it's something that I, I was involved with, you know, for, you know, well over a, you know, about five weeks, you know, working on it. And you, you're going back and forth, back and forth. And, of course, this is before the Internet. So anything you had to submit, uh, you couldn't scan. You had to send them an original or a photograph of it to, to see what their reaction would be. And, and then you have to justify absolutely every component within that, within that patch, within that official shield for your unit, your organization, or whatever it is. So if there's a uniformity with that, with that uh, hypersonic uh, V shape, um, that has to be approved. That has to, that has to provide some part of the story of the, the, op- you know, the unit that you're part of. So. And um, if it has a black background, that can resemble night mission or space, right? Correct. So in the documentary, we show a bunch of these different patches that have lots and lots of black backgrounds. So it gives you an idea of the types of operations they'd be flying at night or uh, going into space and trying to be on the other side of the planet. Who knows? And one thing I found surprising is actually the foreign countries, you know, Japan and, and the Soviets or whatever, they all had similar shapes. So it was not just the United States. It was logos or patches from all over the world. I found that kind of surprising. Jim say earlier that our technology has been 
poached by the Chinese and many other agent, like many other uh, military and uh, space research agencies over the years. Right? They they like to copy um, first, and maybe vice versa. Maybe sometimes we see something that they've come through with, and we invite one of their scientists over to work at Wright Patterson Air Force, or you know. Um, Kirkland Air Base or something like that to work on some exotic stuff. We did talk about um, metamaterials and the, and that type of stuff in in this doc as well. Which you know you can go back. There's been all kinds of scientists from around the world that will end up doing some of that work from you know for the Americans. Okay. Well, well, gentlemen, that's all the questions I had for you today. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the movie before we wrap it up? What? That's it? That's all I had for that's you. That's it? <laughs> <laughs> that's enough. Plenty, I mean, plenty. Well, I hope, I hope uh, Darcy and I answered a bunch of your questions. Oh, that yeah. You really needed to There, I mean, there are more questions I do have, but I don't know. Like, for example, I was wondering... Um, so that like the A12 or the SR71 can go very very fast at altitude, but I've always wondered: can they fly the the top speed, which would be Mach uh, what like 3.2 or something? Could they fly that fast, or do we have anything that could fly that fast? Uh, let's say uh, 10,000 feet, because it would be too much friction, right? The SR71 and A12 is limited to about 500 knots indicated. At 85,000 feet at Mach 3.2, there's less than four-tenths of a percent of the atmosphere. So the, the indicated airspeed, the real airspeed that you're, that you're seeing, could be like 375 knots. But when, in fact, you are actually traveling about 1,800 miles an hour. Hmm. So because the, the, airframe is, the airframe is limited to, you know, uh, to indicated airspeed. That's the amount of air partic- particles hitting your airplane. So... It, you could not go, uh, you probably couldn't go supersonic very long at lower altitude in an SR-71. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the engines are very sensitive to temperature. They love to, they love to operate at minus 70, uh, which I've actually worked in uh, once in Toke Junction, Alaska in 1965. It was January. It was <laughs> cold. Um, so uh, no, the airplane. The airplane uh, just it loves to go. It loves to fly fast. It'll it'll actually fly itself to destruction, or or unstart. Uh, a good example: Bill Weaver was flying SR seventy one nine seven four. That was the best one, best flying of all fifty of the airplanes, and it was the last one that was lost. It it crashed over in the, off of uh, Luzon in the Philippines in April of uh, eighty nine. But that airplane loved to go fast, and each airplane had its own personality. And Bill said they had finished their test guard. They were flying out of Palmdale. It wasn't an Air Force mission. It was a Lockheed flight test mission. And he finished his test guard, and they radioed back to Palmdale and said, the, the, air is, the airplane is running like a Swiss watch. I'd like permission to run it out. And they gave him permission. So he just pushed the throttles all the way forward. Waited to see what happened at Mach 3.43, which is like 2,230 miles an hour. The airplane had a dual unstart. In other words, it it uh, ejected a shockwave that's just inside the inlet, and you lose 80 
plus percent of your thrust when you have an instart. And it was disintegrating. And it made because it, it literally, if he hadn't, if they hadn't the harness on, he would have gone through the, uh, the, the front windscreen and the back seater had gone through his instrument console. It was that, that much of a slam to lose that much thrust. And they, uh, the back seater, from what, from what uh, Bill told me, said he had, when he got home, he, when he got, when they landed, he immediately uh, went into the, uh, bathroom and i'm sure i'm sure he changed his shorts <laughs> because that's something that you don't you know you, you're moving through the air at yeah yeah 36 3700 second um you just uh it's it, it's it's an incredible it's an incredible uh the whole everything about the blackbirds are just uh, unbelievable and i've been i was 18 years old when i saw my first one on march 10th 1964 and i've never been the same um so but the sr-71 uh, likes to fly and same with the a12 likes to fly at the, the very edge of its operational envelope it's actually 98 96 to 98 percent of maximum speed is where the airplane flies all the time hmm. so um, okay well thanks for that yeah and it was it was it was designed with slide rules yeah. Not computers, slide rules. If you look at how long ago, it really was a, a miracle of design technology. And to my knowledge, it still holds the airspeed, the official airspeed record. I'm sure they have something nowadays Correct. that could go faster, but it's it was really a marvel of technology when, you know, when it was created. It still is. Yeah. That's what's amazing. That's what's amazing. An engine that was developed in 1955 for the Navy, uh, with all the operational SR-71s being built with Soviet-supplied titanium sponge, that's the raw material, and uh, there's, there still isn't anything that can touch it operationally that we know of. Yeah, that's that's a, a brilliant part of the story that I found so amusing when I read about it, is that we actually sourced the materials to build it from the country we were using it to spy on. <laughs> Correct. Know, using shell companies. and, and Yeah. And the, the, the sad thing about it, because of fear of starting World War III, we never overflew the Soviet Union. Part of the terms and conditions of, of uh, the release of Francis Gary Powers after he was uh, shot down in May 1st, 1960 in a U-2, he was in, he was in Soviet prison for 15 months, and they had a, a movie called The Bridge, you know, Tom Hanks starred in it. And it was the swapping of Francis Gary Powers and the, the Russian spy that we had. Every, every, everything, about, everything about it is just, uh, the airplane is, is just amazing. But the terms and conditions of, of the release of Francis Gary Powers, besides the uh, prisoner swap, cessation of all manned overflights of the Soviet Union and its satellites, which means we didn't fly over the Warsaw uh, Pact and we didn't fly over the Soviet Union. Uh, but we needed reconnaissance of the Soviet Union. We needed reconnaissance of the, of the Chinese. So starting in 19, uh, shortly after uh, uh, Powers was released, they started working on the D-21 drone, which was a baby Blackbird that was initially going to be launched from a Blackbird, but operational was launched from a B-52. They built 38 of the drones. They were one-time one mission only. Go over, take pictures, come back. It'd eject the, uh, the camera pallet, and then it would blow itself up. Um, the first one launched, kept on going. It didn't turn around and come back. It was dead reckoning. Uh, 
And when Ben Rich retired, he had a chance to go to the Soviet Union and meet with his counterparts of uh, at Sukhoi and McCoy and uh, Illusion. And uh, they handed him a box, a very a beautifully hand-carved wooden box. He opens it up, and it was the data plate from a D-21 engine, the Marquardt uh, ramjet. He said, Mr. Rich, I think this belongs to you. <laughs> so they had four operational launches. They didn't, you know, like Kelly said, it was the most successful failure of any product program he ever uh, was part of. So it was... It was a state-of-the-art airframe and propulsion dealing with 1940s electronics. Wow. Big, massive relays and bulky, uh, high-temperature plugs with, with 100 to 150 pins on a cannon plug. If you can just – if you ever tried putting something in that only had one or two and you bend the damn one of the prongs, that's irritating. But if you have one that has 100 pins, and I mean, they're in so close together, it's – it's a real joy. It's a real <laughs> joy. But, and when they were building it, it was, and designing it, it was more classified than the Manhattan Project. Because hmm. we were going to fly a mock, almost a Mach 4 drone, this is a 3.8, 3.7 speed. And we, they were going to be the launch from, from, a, from a Blackbird or from a B-52. And instead of B-52, maybe a Russian commander would think, well, that's a B-52. He's launching a nuclear-tipped uh, cruise missile at Moscow uh, before he detonates. Let's launch all our missiles to the United States, you know, to North America. So, so because of those possibilities, the D twenty one was not flown over the Soviet Union. Uh, of course, that program was over, long over by the time Russia, you know, the Soviet Union came apart. So, well, Adam, thank yeah. you for chat with us tonight man i'm sure yep. we've given you lots of uh, stuff to think about but uh oh, yeah, yeah take care man and i'm sure we'll chat in the future yeah thanks so much for coming on it was a really exciting topic to talk about and i enjoyed having you on the show i really appreciate it before you guys take off would you let everybody know where they can find you your work and anything else you'd like to mention before we end here you want me to go first uh, I'll go first and then okay. I'll hand it off to you, sir. Um, okay. yeah, just, uh, check out my studio website. It's occultjourneys.com. Um, and I've got all my film posters up there, trailers, descriptions of the films. If you want to see what you're getting into. And if you click on the poster, it'll take you that you can watch, uh, one of my films. So yeah, thanks. And, um, I'm under the same handle on Twitter and just Darcy Weir on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm, uh, yeah, on, I'm on Facebook, um, Jim Goodall. And you, know, you can always tell my, my, my site because I either have pictures of Hawaii, spooky airplanes, uh, uh, and uh, sky stuff in there. Uh, but my books, go to Am- the cheapest way to get it is go to Amazon. Books by James C. Goodall, G-O-O-D-A-L-L. All my hardbound books are uh, very prominent. My most recent one, The 75 Years of the Lucky Skunk Works. I have uh, probably the best uh, pictorial history ever written on the Blackbirds. It's from it's my uh, 25th book. And then I have uh, one on the B-2 
Uh, again, these are pictorial histories. And then I have the, see, the Los Angeles class fast attacks. That's one volume. Volume two is the Sea Wolf Virginia class. And uh, then I have others that dealt with the F-117 and B-2 and stuff like that from Squadron Signal and have whatever. And then those are probably available to use because they're out of print. But they're there. Uh, if you order the uh, the 75 years of Skunk Works, the book is five and a half pounds. It's hardbound. And if you're a Prime member, you get free shipping. Now, I'm not a big fan of Amazon because they're killing a lot of small businesses, but they're they're selling a lot of my books. So <laughs> uh, I guess it's a two-edged sword. And and uh, if you live anywhere in, in anywhere near in or around Arizona or New Mexico or Southern California, I'm all over the place. If you have one, if you buy one of my books and you you find me on Facebook, and you say, okay, next time you're coming to such and such area, uh, would you stop by and, and autograph my book? And the answer is yes. If it's if it's convenient for for both of us to do it, I'd be more than happy to. So, all right, that's it. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on, and I hope to chat with you sometime soon. You take care. Okay, you too. Darcy, take have care, a good Adam. one. Thanks. Okay. You too, Jim. Bye, guys. Talk to you in a bit. All right. Bye. Bye.